and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. As a nation, we're fascinated by crime, even when the details are shocking and horrific, whether that be in TV dramas, films, thrillers, podcasts or real-life stories. Crime reporter Martin Brunt has spent the last three decades covering some of the biggest and most notorious cases in British history for Sky News. We're in an unmarked police car in Croydon, South London, where there's a stabbing a day and a 10% rise in knife crime. Part of the officer's job is to disrupt the borough's gangs. Have you got any bail conditions? Where there are gangs, there are knives. Have you got anything on you now that you shouldn't have? These two teenagers are robbery suspects. From the Fred and Rose West House of Horrors to Diamond Heist, terrorist atrocities and brushing shoulders with some of the world's most violent criminals, he's seen it all. Renowned for often knowing what's going on before his peers, thanks to great trusted sources, Martin has finally found time amidst 24-7 breaking news to write his first book, featuring many undisclosed details and inside track behind the headlines. No one got cracked over the head for no reason, worth picking up simply for its title, is a compelling read, packed full of dispatches from a journalist I was fortunate enough to spend the best part of a decade working alongside in the early days of Sky, and who remains a friend. So Martin, it is great to have you on the podcast, and congratulations on finally becoming an author. Thank you, it's lovely to be here. I uh, didn't really ever envisage writing a book, but the reason for doing it simply was that so many people over such a long time told me, that's a great story or that's a great story. Why don't you write a book or you should write a book? So I did and I hope they were right. You haven't really been blessed with a lot of spare time, have you? Because the very nature of 24-7 news and being on a beat like crime means that you're really always at it. Yes. And as you know, it's a very erratic job. And you're always on call if somebody phones me in the middle of the night and wants to send me abroad or there is a big breaking story. I can hardly say that I'm not in a position to do it. And I have to say, doing a book while I'm still doing that job and all the other demands of domestic life was quite tricky. And I also had a very tight publishing schedule, which I really wasn't expecting. I'd never done a book. I had no idea what was ahead of me. But I feel incredibly relieved that I did it. I did it more or less on time. Missed a couple of deadlines. You know, that's not something a journalist should do. So I wasn't terribly proud of that. But it's done. And it's out there. And it's got a funny title that will intrigue people or confuse them. I don't know which is the more likely, but I do feel a real sense of achievement. I bet you do. And I'm just wondering, how did you feel when you actually saw and felt a substantial hardback in your hand for the very first time with your name on the front cover as the author? It's a very strange feeling. Right from the start, the publisher said that it would be out in hardback originally. So I wasn't sure whether that was the best idea because a hardback, well, my book costs £20. But you're right, just the tangible nature of holding a book. I mean, whether it's my name on it or somebody else's, it's such a beautiful piece of art, a hardback book. And even if I take the cover off and see 
see it very plainly. I still get a thrill, but of course, put the jacket on. There's my name and the title I chose and all the other stuff that was more or less all down to me. It's difficult to describe. I don't think that I'm ever likely to write another book. So I'm glad I did this one. I'm glad it's out. I'm glad it's selling. And people tell me mostly that they are enjoying it. I certainly enjoyed it. I read it cover to cover, actually, all 333 pages. It's accompanied me. It's actually quite large to take on the tube and everything. It's been everywhere with me because I don't always read whole books when I'm doing a podcast with an author because I simply don't have time. But I got completely gripped. You mentioned the title, Martin. It is a really intriguing title. So I think we need to know why you called it that. It's the first thing I have to explain to people. Um, So no one got cracked over the head for no reason is a quotation from Sir John Stevens, who at the time was the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. There'd been a demonstration outside the House of Commons. It wasn't your normal gathering of protesters. These were country folk, quite well-heeled, landowners, farmers, a lot of farm workers as well, but generally they were people with a conservative with a small C, a lot of them in barber jackets, posh brogues. You would think core supporters of law and order, and I guess largely they were, but the demonstration, which was against a proposal by the Labour government to introduce a ban on fox hunting, it got out of hand. It got very heated. Blows were exchanged. The police drew their battens and some people got hurt, not seriously. The next morning, we had what was then a regular monthly briefing with the commissioner. The crime reporters gathered. One of us had the temerity to ask him why his officers had lashed out in the way they did. And Sir John, who's a very articulate, very thoughtful guy, for once was a bit flummoxed. And he said, no one got cracked over the head for no reason. So it was a bit garbled. There was a double negative but we knew what he meant. And what I don't put in the book, because I'd forgotten it at the time, but somebody (laughs) has pointed out since, that at the end of the briefing, we all used to gather around the tea trolley in the press room at Scotland Yard. And some people remembered Sir John getting hold of the Daily Mail crime reporter who'd asked that question and had elicited that rather strange response. Sir John had him in a headlock, (laughs) very playfully, But I guess looking back, that is an example of what the relationship used to be between cops and reporters. And one other story about the title, I should tell you, a lawyer friend of mine, a guy called Henry Milner, he hated the title. He's written a couple of books with much shorter titles. I was having lunch with Henry before the book came out, and it still wasn't too late to change the title. We're in a posh North London restaurant Henry said, I hate that title. I'm going to do some market research. So he went over to the next table. There were five rather posh, well-dressed ladies having a chat. They didn't mind the interruption because Henry is a very charming guy. And he said, look, I want to vote, please. Can you tell me which of these two titles you prefer? He said, my friend's written a book and he wants to call it No One Got Cracked Over the Head for No Reason. I think it should be called, said Henry, the man in the grubby raincoat. (laughs) A show of hands and a resounding 5-0 to Henry's title. But I thought man in a grubby raincoat has certain connotations in the crime world and it doesn't really apply to me. I've got through lots of grubby raincoats over the years, 
Um, but that really wasn't the right title. That definitely wasn't the right title. I would have definitely voted against that. And I do remember you in raincoats, but also I never remember you in a grubby raincoat. And I don't think that was the correct title. You talked about the pressures of the publishers and getting the book written in time. But Prisoner A8076AG wasn't really thinking about your publication date. Charles Bronson, yes, Britain's most notorious prisoner. I, along with other journalists, used to call him Britain's most violent prisoner. But I think that's a bit unfair. And it's very difficult to know whether he is Britain's most violent prisoner. There's a lot of competition, you know, in the hundred and odd UK prisons. I've got to know Charles Bronson or Charles Salvador, as he renamed himself a few years ago, pretty well over, I suppose, most of my career covering crime. And bear in mind that Charles Bronson's been in prison for 48 years. I have a lot of sympathy for him because, as he says very simply, there doesn't seem to be any really logical reason for him still being in prison. He's never killed anybody. He's never raped anybody. He's simply guilty of a lot. And there have been a lot of violent episodes in prison. And he just compounds the sentences that he's been given. And that's an excuse for the prison authorities not to release him. The big issue is, does he just react to authority figures inside prison? And would he be safe out on the streets with members of the public? And nobody within the prison system is yet ready to take that chance. And as the publication date approached, we were getting very excited in my world at at the prospect of Charles Bronson's latest parole hearing. And of course, um, it didn't tie in with the ultimate publication day of my book. So I was able to add a footnote to the Bronson chapter, which covers my relationship with him over more than 30 years, just to say that I had attended the start of the parole hearing, but the book was published and we then had to wait for the result of his parole hearing, which was much as expected a rejection of him being given his freedom. He sent you an audio message too, didn't he, which you put out on television. What did he say? He did. The thing about Charles Bronson is that nobody is as good at describing the sadness, the hopelessness of his own situation. And he's also a very funny guy. He has a great sense of self-deprecating humour. He said broadly in the message that He was hoping to get out. He wanted to get out for nobody else's sake than his mother. He's got an elderly mother in her 90s. And he said that her wish, her dying wish, is to see him free and on the outside so that he can go and visit her. But he makes the point in two messages he sent me that he has very heavily restricted visits from members of his family. His biggest gripe, and I think this is what, causes him the biggest problem is that he has constantly or has been in the past largely moved from prison to prison because the authorities don't really know how to handle him. He's got to a stage now where he doesn't get on terribly well with his prison guards and he feels that sometimes they goad him into action. But he does make the point that he hasn't committed any violent episodes for the last, what, four or five years So I think there is a chink of light. I think what the prison service needs to do is to gradually put him through the various categories of security 
and reduce the security around him with a view to one day perhaps putting him into an open prison and maybe day release. And I think if he can show that he can live happily with other people, then he will see his freedom. But I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. He's clearly retained some kind of sense of humour. The line that made me smile was in the letter he wrote to the parole board when he said he'd had more porridge than Goldilocks. <laughs> so uh, it'd be interesting to see whether indeed he ever gets released or not. I just wonder, Martin, why are we all so fascinated by crime, whether that be fact or fiction, and often the grisly details that accompany it? Do you know, I hadn't much thought about people's fascination with crime. It was enough that they were. People absorb books, true crime, fictional crime, the proliferation of podcasts, particularly those with a crime orientation, have just exploded. There are all sorts of ways of reading about crime or listening to crime or watching crime. I mean, the whole series of crime scene investigations has millions of viewers. So when I started writing the book, the publisher said, look, let's just look at the fascination. And I suppose my starting point was when we're driving along the motorway and we see a car crash and we all slow down and gawp, don't we? We do, we do. It's It's shameful to admit it, but we do. Yeah, it's second nature. And I think one of my abiding thoughts is that crime, or particularly violent crime, is something that happens to other people, but we're fascinated in what has affected other people Because at the same time, we think, poor them, but lucky me. Car crashes generally aren't crimes, but it's the same principle, I think. We gawp, we want to know what's happened, because we think, how would we deal with that happening to us? And then, of course, we put our foot down and we arrive at our destination unscathed. And I think with crime, particularly violent crime, it tends to be something that happens to other people. But we do need to know how we should avoid it. It's good to know how, why, where it happened so that we can perhaps avoid it. I did interview a number of experts, a criminologist. His view was that this obsession with or this fascination with crime um, is a subconscious survival technique. Society needs to keep going by learning how we can avoid particularly violent crime, that prolongs the human race. I spoke to a psychologist, a woman psychologist, who said, yes, that subconscious need to understand crime and violence is part of it. The sales of books about true crime particularly, the biggest audience, are women. And a woman psychologist I spoke to said there's a very good reason for that, because women are bombarded in the news by stories about women as victims. People like me are responsible for that. And it's true because, you know, women are the more vulnerable of the sexes, if I'm allowed to say that in today's PC world. But they're also far more likely to be the victims than the perpetrators of violence. And for that reason, they're bombarded with stories about women as victims. And for that reason, they also need, perhaps subconsciously, to know why other women become the victims 
of violence so that they can avoid becoming victims themselves. I was surprised to learn that a person goes missing every 90 seconds in the UK. And it made me think about cases like the recent case of Nicola Bully, the mum of two who disappeared from a Lancashire riverbank and how that story gripped the nation and was on every channel, every headline was about her disappearance. Why do some crimes, Martin, like that capture the nation's imagination and others, i.e. in this case, lots of perhaps a thousand a day missing people fall by the wayside and we never hear about them. Most missing people, the vast majority, are found pretty quickly within 24 hours. So there isn't really a chance for those cases to hit the media. The issue with Nicola Bully, I think, why did it become such a huge story? I think there was something about Nicola herself. It was her very ordinariness that attracted people and she appeared to have an idyllic life. Mid-40s, she was very attractive. She had children. She seemed to have a very happily married life. And she disappeared in very ordinary circumstances. And I think that initially was the attraction. She had left home. She had taken her kids to school, dropped them off, had driven to the riverbank, was walking the dog along the riverside. And those are all things that just resonated with people. And of course, she took lots of selfie photographs in the very position from where she had vanished. So I think all of that contributed to the huge interest in what had happened to her. And and there also is, is a clue to the fascination. What did happen to her? We still don't know after all this time. I mean, the coroner is still investigating exactly what happened. We know that her body was recovered from the river, but we still don't know for sure how she ended up in the river. And of course, as the days went on, there did then become this issue with Lancashire police, who for some crazy reason, suddenly one afternoon put out information about Nicola's personal life. But it added to the intrigue, and people do love to play detective. There are all these CSI programs, what we used to call the armchair detectives, today are far more knowledgeable. They absorb these programs, they have a lot more knowledge, and of course they're even more tempted when there's a missing person particularly, and the police aren't able to solve it. People think, well, perhaps I can look for clues that the police may have missed. And of course, in the Nicola Bully case, a lot of people turned up at the very spot and were trampling over potential evidence, certainly getting under the feet of the police who had to appeal for these people to stop coming and go back to their armchairs and follow the case from there. So for all those reasons, I think that's why the Nicola Bully case took off as a big news story. I'm going to take you back in time now to a breaking story that we worked on together a long, long, long time ago. It was the Fred and Rose West murders in Gloucester. Just remind us in a nutshell, Martin, what happened at 25 Cromwell Street. Yes, this goes back to 1994. At least that's when the story emerged. Fred and Rose West were on the face of it, a happily married couple with lots of children living in a rather tumble down house in Gloucestershire. But suddenly the police became interested in what they'd been doing inside that house. And it very quickly emerged that there were a number of bodies buried in the cellar under the patio of the house, including the body of their daughter, Heather. And what emerged in those few weeks um, was a story of Fred and Rose West serial killers who have been luring young 
vulnerable women over many years, going back to the 70s, into their house where they attacked them, tied them up, took them down to the cellar, tortured them, sexually abused them, killed them, and buried them in the house. It was the most extraordinary and grim story. And I would imagine one of the most grim trials you've ever covered. How difficult was it to hear testimony from one of Fred's daughters about what they did to her? I'm quite good at compartmentalising the stories that I cover. People always ask, how do you cope with it? I cope quite well. And I think I am very good at shutting it off. And I also, you know, as a professional journalist, you have to be a bit blinkered and you have to get on with the job and not think too much about the effect. You obviously are conscious of the effect of these stories on other people, but you kind of subvert your own feelings. I mean, sometimes stuff does break through. And I have to say that the trial of Rose West, because Fred had already killed himself in prison, Rose West's trial was sensational, and particularly because of the evidence of Anne Marie, who was Fred's daughter. So she gave evidence against Rose, her stepmother, And she did in excruciating detail and in a very monotone voice describe quite impassionately, which made it worse, I suppose, the ordeal that she had been put through night after night from the age of eight, taken down to the cellar, raped by her father and by her stepmother, and all the time being told, we're doing this because we love you. This is a parent's way of expressing our love for you. And on top of all that, the most chilling moment for me was when Anne-Marie said that she used to go to school the next morning, meet up with her classmates, thinking that they were being put through the same ordeal every night that she was going through. And that's how every parent demonstrated their love for their children. So she thought it was normal behaviour. That story, I think, sticks in my mind, well, for many reasons, but partly because of the extraordinary relationship that you and I and and our team developed with the detectives. And I'll just give you a small example, because I don't know, it might be an example of something that you've forgotten from that time. But I was there in a fixing and producing role, and it was when the police were digging up Fred West's garden, and my mission was to find a life point for our correspondents and for you. And our news editor arrived in Gloucester and asked to see what I'd saw. And I remember leading him through a small terrace house where a lovely Indian family of, I think, 12 lived. And there was always a delicious smell of dal or curry permeating around the kitchen. We were made so welcome there. And I'd managed to have a wooden structure constructed at the end of the garden overlooking the dig. And I remember our news editor, Chris Hampson, arriving just thinking I was absolutely ridiculous and saying, you know, the police will never let you get away with that. Not only that, I hadn't done it just for Sky, I'd sold positions on it to BBC and ITV, (laughs) at which point the lead detective on that case arrived, walked through the family home to the structure, looking for you and you did your live. And I'll never forget the look on Chris Hampson's face. And that showed the there was a deep relationship there, trusted relationship. And I wonder if that partly came because it was a crime that had absolutely horrified the police as well and had been something like those Gloucestershire police officers had never seen in their careers. You're talking, I think, about John Bennett, who was the senior investigating officer, who wasn't, to be fair, initially a huge fan 
of the media. But he recognised that as the body count rose, that he really did need to find out how many more there were. And bear in mind, Helen, that a lot of those victims were from the 70s, young women who had left home for whatever reason and were hitchhiking around the country. And it was the norm for that sort of thing to happen. And women, young women particularly, often left home and completely lost contact with their families. You know, there wasn't social media and mobile phones and emails and stuff. You know, if you left home, unless you wrote a letter, even phones weren't that common in a lot of homes. People did lose contact and families often didn't know what had happened to their daughters. And that, I suppose, is why Fred and Rose were able to ensnare these young women and effectively make them disappear and nobody had any clue where they were, would not necessarily connect them with Gloucester. So the police really did need the media's help in publicising this appalling story and continuing to ask families who had lost or were missing a child who'd left home for whatever reason to get in contact and pass on their details. And what they discovered, I suppose, in the N12 victims at least, but perhaps there are others who were victims of Fred and Rose. And of course, you and I and our colleagues were there for such a long time that we became very familiar with the detectives. We had a great relationship, and I think that helped enormously. But of course, you know, we are all professionals. The police wanted our help to keep those appeals for information going. And, you know, much against perhaps his better nature, John Bennett became, I wouldn't say a fan of, of all of us, but he recognised that we were vital in him finding as many of those Fred and Rose victims as he could. I gather you've been frightening fragile old ladies with excerpts from that particular chapter, so I won't get you to read from the House of Horrors. But will you read us a passage from the jewellery heist chapter, Martin? I will. This is the story of Valerio Vice. It's a chapter called The Jewellery Heist. There's a basic principle in crime reporting that says that villains and their villainy should never be glamorised. But a judge, a detective and me, all three of us, fell in our own way for the charms of Valerio Vice. My interest in him eventually wore off when he threatened to kill me. But by then, there were a thousand miles between us and he was in jail. In his youth, the dark and handsome Vice was an egocentric, right-wing political activist, an educated lawyer's son who studied the philosopher Nietzsche and eventually adopted his doctrine to live dangerously. He developed an addiction to crime, committed 50 robberies in Italy and fled as a fugitive to London, where he robbed the Queen's Bank coots. Armed with pistols, he and a gang then pulled off what is still Britain's biggest heist, the raid on the Knightsbridge Safe Deposit Centre, where they smashed their way into 160 locked metal boxes and got away with £60 million worth of jewellery, gold and drugs. Vice had befriended the centre's debt-ridden manager, Parvez Latif, plied him with cocaine and secured his insider help. Vice reveled in his playboy gangster image, later boasting that after dragging the loot in a dozen bags up to his top-floor rented flat in Hampstead, North London, he filled the bath with cash, something he'd seen done in an old crime movie. He chipped a fragment from a huge rock of cocaine and snorted it 
through a rolled 1,000 franc Swiss banknote. And as the rising sun burst through the curtains, he put on sunglasses to gaze at the dazzling pile of jewels on his lounge floor. He couldn't help indulging himself, even though he knew he shouldn't hang around for long. He paid off his accomplices, a gang of pretty villains he'd recruited in London, and sent them out of the country, before he zipped around Europe, depositing cash in various bank accounts. In the Belgian city of Antwerp, he sold five diamonds for a million pounds, a third of their value. He was focused, organised and clever, but he left two bloody fingerprints in the Knightsbridge vault as he smashed open the safe deposit boxes so he wasn't as clever as he should have been. The judge at his old Bailey trial, Common Sergeant Robert Limbury, the second most senior judge of the Central Criminal Court, was the first of our trio of admirers to show him more respect than we should have done by telling him, in court, I have seen a man of charm and courtesy, a man of substantial abilities. He spoiled it a bit by adding, but these qualities, combined with others, serve to make you a very dangerous man. Then he imprisoned him for 22 years. You did get quite taken by him, didn't you, Martin? I did. Not only was he a glamorous figure, he was quite a small chap. He was handsome and he was very well dressed, but he was a great talker. He had a great sense of humour. And it was really the circumstances in which I met him that intrigued me more than anything because he got a 22-year sentence at the Old Bailey. After four years, he persuaded the British authorities to transfer him to finish his sentence in Italy with the sentencing judge's support. And as soon as, well, perhaps not as soon as he got to Italy, but within a couple of years, he was out on weekend leave. And that's where I went to see him. So here was Vice halfway through a 22-year sentence delivered at the Old Bailey, sitting at a rather lovely beachside cafe on the beach at Pescara on the Adriatic coast, dressed in Ferragamo shoes and a lovely jacket and some very expensive trousers, chatting to me with a Rolex watch on his wrist chatting to me as though nothing had happened and he was a free man. It really was terribly incongruous. And he was a great speaker as well. And he talked about the robbery and the crucial question was, where's it all gone? Because most of it was missing. And he said, oh, I spent it all or it disappeared in some way. And then he kind of looked at me and smiled. But then he threatened to kill you. So you went off him at that point, I'm guessing. Uh, Yes, it would put most people off, wouldn't it? (laughs) One of the things I did, I came back to the UK and I did a a long TV report. And I also started a new part-time career in magazine writing because GQ magazine was very keen on me doing something for them. So I wrote a feature for them about, I don't know, three or 4,000 words. And of course, I was able to use a lot more detail in that magazine piece. And I think what really annoyed him when he read it was that I had suggested I knew one of his accomplices, an aging man who had, according to a police source, disappeared at the time of Vice's arrest and had wandered down to Dover and got on a ferry with a suitcase perhaps full of jewels and, you know, without anybody noticing him, had made his way back to Italy. And I suggested that this man who, what can I say, was very well known to Vice, had really walked off 
under the noses of the cops with a lot of the jewellery. And I didn't say exactly who this man was, but Vichy, it was clear to him who I was talking about. And he got very annoyed, so he phoned me from prison. He had access to a phone, and he called me, well, I couldn't say it on air, but he called me the worst names you can imagine, and said if he ever sees me again, he's going to kill me. I was a little worried, but we were a long way apart and he was in prison. But two years after that, he was out on another weekend leave. Some police stumbled across him. He was at a remote farmhouse with a mafioso contact of his, and the police thought they were planning a hijack or a robbery or something. There was a shootout. Poor old Valerio was shot dead by the police. So in some ways, I felt rather sorry. I didn't know him terribly well, but I liked him. On the other hand, with his demise, also went my death threat. Yeah, on the other hand, you sleep a bit more easy. You have been renowned in the business for having amazing contacts. And I know the relationship, particularly between journalists and police contacts, has changed very much over the years. Just take me back to the old days where I'm exaggerating a bit, but it was a case of slipping into a dimly lit, shady looking pub in the shadows, wearing your clean rain mac with a newspaper under your arm and a few notes probably scribbled on the back of a cigarette packet. Those were the glory days of contacts. I know how important contacts are in my world. And you really did have some fantastic, still do, but it was a different relationship, certainly with the police contacts in those days, wasn't it? It was. One of the things I discovered when I started covering crime for Sky. And I did other things for the first four years. I was a general reporter. But I was quite keen to become the crime reporter when there was a vacancy because I sensed, I mean, I knew police officers anyway from my Fleet Street days, but I also sensed that Sky News was a great platform. It was a global platform. But we also had, as the first 24-hour news channel in Europe, we also had a lot of space to fill, a lot of time to fill, which meant that For a lot of detectives who couldn't get their stories on mainstream television because of short bulletins, could often talk to me and tell me stories that I was interested in. I think they also were rather flattered by the attentions of a TV reporter. And the idea of themselves appearing on the telly was also something that they found attractive. So all of that meant that police were more ready to talk to me than perhaps they were to other journalists. So I had an advantage, but it was a time when police were allowed to talk to reporters. I suppose we were still rather careful about where we met, dingy corners of pubs, and you know, not everybody wanted to be known as a confidential source, but they were free to tell me about their own stories, which was fine. But they were also encouraged, I suppose, by each other to talk about each other's stories. So I got an awful lot of information. And of course, we swapped numbers. We were in regular contact with each other. And perhaps more important than me covering their own stories, I was able to call them about other issues to see what they were hearing at work. I honestly don't remember any police officer phoning me and telling me something that reflected very badly on their own force, whether it was the Met or any other force in the UK. They generally wanted me to tell good stories about what they were doing or about what their colleagues were doing. And I've always argued this, that what crime reporters want more than anything is to hear good detective stories. 
course we're there to hold police to account when things go wrong, and most police accept that. But more than that, great detective stories, I think, are what I'm interested in. I had a long golden period of people telling me great detective stories, but it all came to an end after the phone hacking scandal at the News of the World, when that eventually exposed a too cosy relationship between senior cops at Scotland Yard, you know, including the commissioner, and executives at the News of the World. And what happened was Scotland Yard didn't really fully investigate phone hacking as they should have done initially. So two people went to jail. Four or five years later, The Guardian exposed much more widespread phone hacking that had been going on, and far more people were arrested and put on trial. And in the wake of that, we had two reports, the Filkin report and the Leveson report, that examined media ethics and particularly the relationship between police and journalists. And the upshot, essentially, was that the relationship changed. Leveson, which is the bigger of the two inquiries, said, why should reporters be given access, exclusive access or special access to information held by a public body like the police. But then it went further and the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, really embraced this new way of doing things and made it clear that if any of his officers were caught speaking to journalists out of turn, outside their own remit, and even within their own remit, without permission of senior officers, they would be disciplined and in some cases charged with criminal offences. And the relationship has never recovered. I suppose now there's a different kind of relationship because of social media. One aspect you talk about in the book is a story where you're getting eyewitness accounts from Twitter. So it's changed in lots of different ways, hasn't it? Yes, social media can be a bane citizen journalists who wander around the crime scene at the Nicola Bully investigation did get under the feet of the police. They got in the way of the more mainstream reporters like me to a degree. But, you know, I have an ambivalent attitude to social media because we use it an awful lot. It's a great source of photographs, of information, of video. So, you know, I'm not here to condemn social media. It's a huge benefit to me an awful lot of the time. And I do tell a story in the book of trying to cover a big crime that had happened where the police were telling us absolutely nothing, but we were beginning to build up a picture of a kidnap and, uh, and the death of somebody, the murder of somebody, purely from what people were beginning to put on Twitter. It was the early days of Twitter, and we didn't know at that stage how much we could trust it. But eventually, at the end of two hours of me live on air reporting what people were tweeting and making it clear that's where the information was coming from, at the end of all that, when we did hear from the police, it transpired that those witnesses who were putting out bits of information were more or less accurate about what they were seeing and what they were putting out as information. That was a seminal moment. We decided that if we could, as much as we were able to verify where information was coming from on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, then we could go with it as a story source. But at the same time, making it clear to viewers what we didn't know. Yeah, that's important too, I think, what you didn't know. You said earlier in our chat, Martin, that you think you cope very well with all the crime stories and the things that as a crime reporter you have access to. You're a dad. 
How did you cope with the Sarah Payne murder, who was just eight years old when she was murdered? It felt to me a bit close to home this time for you. Geographically, it was close to home. And I think that's perhaps why it resonated more. Sarah Payne, eight-year-old girl who disappeared. And again, I talk about the, the ordinary situations in which the worst crimes happen. She was playing with her siblings in a cornfield on a summer's day at the start of the school holidays near the south coast. And I lived, I don't know, 20 miles away at the time. And my daughter was about the same age as Sarah. And Sarah ran through a hedge seconds ahead of her siblings. But that was long enough for this predatory paedophile, Roy Whiting, who was lurking around looking for a victim, to snatch her, put her in his van and drive off. It's incredible that thin dividing line between safety and horror. And it's something that I've always tried to instill in my kids, that the dividing line between life and death can be so thin. And I hope they've taken that on board, not that I want them to worry about wherever they go, about what might befall them, but just to be aware that things can change just like that. And that's what happened to Sarah. I was covering that story on a daily basis for a month, driving from my home across the South Downs in glorious sunshine to cover, again, one of the grimmest stories that I'd ever covered. And I got to know Sarah's mum and dad, Sarah and Michael, very well. And they were incredibly good at being in touch with us. And they didn't see us as an intrusion. They did recognise that we were there to help them to publicise the need for information about what had happened to Sarah, even though as the days went on, they must have confronted what we thought was inevitably going to be Sarah's death. But it did, for once, kind of impinge on my own feelings. But I felt that I was able to focus as a professional journalist on covering that story, doing what I could to help the police, to help the Payne family get the answers that they were looking for. And of course, when they did get those answers, it was the worst possible news. The other thing that I took from that was having got very close, particularly to Sarah Payne, Sarah's mother, when the bad news is delivered, that relationship just ends. And I think that's really wrong. And do you try and maintain it and upset the family, be more intrusive? Or do you just walk away, which I kind of did, as we all did in that particular case, and then run the risk of the accusation that, well, you're just a cynical journalist. You only wanted to talk to us while there was a story. It's a very fine judgment to have to make. It is, but you've always been aware and sensitive that at the heart of many of the stories you cover are victims. And I thought one lovely touch from the Sarah Payne case was as you drove in the sunshine through the South Downs and appreciated the beauty of those South Downs, you listened to classical music and you gave the CD of that music, didn't you, to the family, which I think was a really lovely thing to do. I still don't know whether that was the right thing. It felt like the right thing. I mean, I just happened to be playing in my car at that time a collection of really lovely classical music that people will recognise, even if they don't know the names of it. So there's something called the Allegri Miserere. There's something called Spenninalium. They're both very old pieces of music, but there were lots of others. And I found, in some ways, although they're quite sad on the face of it, I found them quite uplifting. And I'd done an interview after Sarah's body had been discovered 
and I, I hadn't been looking forward to this interview. And I did a live interview with her parents at her grandparents' house, which is the scenario where Sarah had been snatched down by the coast near Littlehampton. And I made the point during this live interview that I was so grateful for the way that her parents particularly had made us welcome and recognised that we were part of the story, certainly in the early days of getting the family publicity. And when we broke up and we were packing away, I had the CD with me and it just seemed as though I ought to make some kind of gesture. I was walking away. I probably wasn't going to see the family again, at least for, for a year. We were briefly reunited at the trial of Roy Whiting, but only then very briefly. I just thought I ought to do something. So I gave Michael, as we were in the kitchen about to leave, I said, look, I found this terribly uplifting, so please listen to it and see if, if it's of any value to you. Now, I don't know whether they listened to it. I hope they did, but I've never had a chance to ask and they may not remember that gesture. And I hope I didn't do it to make me feel better. No, I'm sure you did it for all the right reasons. I know the tracks. I've actually got the tracks on my Spotify and they're very beautiful and calming. And I think your heart was in the right place, which is what matters on those stories. At the end, you pay tribute to your mum and dad, who you say instilled in you an inquiring mind, a sense of right and wrong, everything you needed to be a crime reporter, police officer or villain. I'm guessing they were pretty happy with your choice in the end. I think so, yes. I think they were rather intrigued that I went into journalism because none of my family, going back generations as far as I know, had anything to do with this business. My father was a teacher, my mother was a secretary, my brother was a musician and a chorister, my sister was a musician and a music teacher, and my father was a singer. So if there's any family trait, it's music. And although I enjoyed music and a bit of learning of an instrument in my teenage days, I got completely obsessed for one reason or another with journalism. And I kind of left music behind. I've tried to pick it up since with various degrees of success. But journalism, for some reason, was something that I always wanted to do. I think I got my first interest as a paper boy in Ely in Cambridgeshire, helping the newsagent take these lovely, warm, sweet-smelling bundles of paper done up with twine off the overnight train from Fleet Street to our little city in Fens. Uh, and looking at those front pages and you know, seeing those great stories and thinking these are things that happen 60 miles down the track and perhaps subconsciously even wanting to be part of telling those kind of stories. So I think that probably was the first bit of instinct that kicked in. And then, you know, as I got older, I just loved reading newspapers. And particularly, I enjoyed the crime stories and I've not stopped since. You're so similar to me. I mean, the sweet smell of the ink, the warm newspapers. I was a tea girl when I was 14 at the newspaper where my dad was a regional reporter for 46 years. So it was ingrained in me and I just knew then I wanted to do the same and be a storyteller. It really has been great to feature you on the podcast. Over the years, I think we've perhaps all taken for granted the extraordinary stories that you've shared with us over a drink or two. So I'm glad now that they're out there for everybody to read. You touched on their music and how you've been a big music fan. Leave us with a short excerpt from the chapter called The Rockstar, but enough to tease us so that people want to go and read that book, Martin. Okay, this is the chapter entitled Imaginatively, The Rockstar. The day was chilly and the fields and hedgerows were glimmering in the autumn sun. For a multi-millionaire rock star who guarded his family privacy, 
the medieval landscape of the high weald of southeast England seemed a perfect place to live, unless a local nutter and his friends were planning to kidnap your wife and hold her prisoner in a woodland lair until the payment of a £10 million ransom. That was the story I wanted to discuss with Paul McCartney, the greatest songwriter of the 20th century, whose old band, The Beatles, practically invented British pop music. It was just after nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, not too early, I thought, to call and discuss bad news with someone, famous or not. If he wasn't up yet, I could wait. I steered my shabby Austin Montego off the country lane and down a long drive towards a modern brick-built farmhouse and parked behind it. As I got out, a young farmhand emerged from a barn, dressed in gumboots and a donkey jacket. He quickly walked towards me. I was relieved to see he wasn't carrying a shotgun. Can I help you? I asked with only a faint hint of menace. Before I could answer, the back door of the house opened and a familiar Liverpudlian voice called out, It's okay, he's a reporter. How did he know that? I turned round to see an unsmiling McCartney standing in the doorway. It may have been the first time he had greeted a hack in his pyjamas. He was wearing the pyjamas, not me. <laughs> That's wonderful. So if you want to hear the rest of the Paul McCartney story and some incredible stories from Martin's three decades in crime, then do, I'm looking at the book here, do get a copy of No One Got Cracked Over Their Head for No Reason. But I warn you, once you start reading, though, you won't want to put it down. Thank you so much, Martin. I hope you're doing an audio book. You've got a beautiful voice for it. I'm waiting to hear. It's funny, the McCartney story is something that taught me among others, a great lesson that people always say you shouldn't meet your heroes. McCartney was one of those boyhood heroes I met in the course of my career. And the career isn't over. You know, this isn't the autobiography at the end of a career. But I've never been disappointed by meeting my heroes. Even in the course of crime reporting, Paul McCartney, the author Laurie Lee, the footballer Georgie Best, they've all engaged me and been prepared to talk to me. And I'm always grateful for that. Well, keep going with what you're doing and we'll continue to watch you on Sky News. You've already said there isn't going to be a second book. I can imagine why, actually, because you can see so much effort's gone into this. But you have been listening to crime reporter Martin Brunt, who I'm sure many people will recognise from Sky News. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another great guest. Bye for now. 